Okay. We have our two stars here, and um, I want to wish you all a very good morning. This is a thrill for all of us to have these two very special people with us today. So for those of you who are new, don't know us, I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're always thrilled to welcome everyone here to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. And we have wonderful exhibitions on view, wonderful programs coming up. If you don't already have our brochure, if you're not already a member, please pick up a brochure. Consider becoming a member. Memberships help support all the programs that we do. And today's program, A Conversation with Justice Stevens, is part of the Bernard Nyren Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, we'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his support which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees, Francie Blasberg, Susan Danilo, Joel Pickett, Cy Sternberg, Sternberg, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a big hand. So the program this morning will last an hour. It'll include a question and answer session and the quest, the Q&A is conducted via handwritten, uh, via written questions on note cards. You should have received pencil and cards. If you haven't, I think there may be some staff out to uh, give you some. And they will be, the staff will be circulating around the auditorium a little later and collecting the cards um, and we'll be handing them to Marsha Coyle. Um, there are also some pre-signed books by Justice Stevens. They'll be available at our, at our museum store kiosk, which is right on the Central Park West side. And his books are Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution, and Five Chiefs, a Supreme Court Memoir. So this morning, we are honored to welcome Associate Justice John Paul Stevens, who most recently celebrated his 96th birthday. Upon his retirement from the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010, Justice Stevens was the third longest serving justice in American history. He has served as a member of the Attorney General's National Committee to Study Antitrust Law, as second vice president of the Chicago Bar Association, and as a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Justice Stevens was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1975 by President Ford. In 2012, President Obama awarded Justice Stevens the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. The, go ahead, let's applaud. And the president said of Justice Stevens, known for his independent, pragmatic, and rigorous approach to judging, Justice Stevens and his work have left a lasting imprint on the law in areas such as civil rights, First Amendment, the death penalty, administrative law, and the separation of powers. Our moderator today is the award-winning journalist, Marsha Coyle. She is chief, well, let's give Marsha a hand. She is chief Washington correspondent for the National Law Journal, Ms. Coyle has covered the Supreme Court for 20 years and appears regularly, as you all may know, on PBS's NewsHour. She is the author of, okay, more, more applause here. She is the author of The Roberts Court, The Struggle for the Constitution, which is also available at our museum store kiosk. Before we begin, I just wanna remind everyone to turn off cell phones, electronic beepers, and please note, photography is not permitted. And now, please join me again in welcoming our special guest. Thank you. Well, it is wonderful to be back in New York City and at the Historical Society and to be with you again. I'm especially pleased to be sitting next to Justice Stevens. 
in my little world, he is a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also pleased, uh, believe it or not, he did say he retired in 2010, but in the last six years, he's written two books. Uh, he's working on his third, as he told me this morning, and he continues to give speeches about the law all around the country. So we're very lucky that we can continue to learn from him about the court and about the law. I'm thinking this morning we're going to be uh, a little light on the law uh, because this is a real opportunity for you to get to know him as a person. Uh, so we're going to do a little reminiscing, uh, talk about uh, the law a little bit, and uh, if he allows me some current events, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't shut me down, which I know he's very capable of doing in a very nice way. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm going to start with the reminiscing part and ask you if you'd share with us uh, your thoughts about Justice Scalia, uh, who passed away uh, February 13th. Uh, his absence on the bench uh, is felt, I think, by many uh, of his colleagues, as well as those of us who cover the court. Uh, but I think we'd like to know if his persona on the bench was similar to his persona in private. And did he ever get under your skin when he was writing some of those very entertaining opinions? Well, uh, I guess he probably get under my skin a fair, <laughs> fairly, <laughs> fairly often. But we, uh, we were very good friends. There's no doubt about that. And, and I think... Uh, uh, as you've heard from many, many people during the last couple of months, uh, everybody loved Dino. He was, had a wonderful sense of humor. He's an awfully nice guy. And he, we disagreed profoundly <laughs> on, on a number of things. But uh, that's part of the ball game. In that job, you, you have to get along with your, your colleagues and you can't let things upset you. You just have to do the best you can. He told me once that you were his favorite sparring partner. He said the other justices would deal with his arguments if they were in a majority opinion or a dissenting opinion, sort of in a perfunctory way. But you always went toe to toe with him, even though you were always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny how you can have that, uh, that feeling on both sides of the issue. <laughs> Because there really are an amazing number of things he was wrong about. <laughs> I think uh, many people now are wondering how the court is dealing uh, with only eight justices. And uh, I, I know that you have been on the court at times when there was a vacancy, perhaps not as long as the vacancy that this court may experience. But could you tell us a little bit about how uh, having only eight justices instead of nine affects the court? Well, of course, uh, there are certain cases you just can't decide. And uh, we had a fair number over the years while I was there where, where someone would be out and uh, they'd be 4-4 as four, four a, a di distinct possibility. And it occurred to me just reading the opinions that came down on Monday as a conspiracy charge of violating the, the Hobbs Act, I guess it was. And I thought that would have been an excellent case for a 4-4 decision. <laughs> <laughs> it I obviously didn't... was a wrong decision. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does it also affect the justices uh, when they're deciding whether to grant review in a case? Yes, I think it does. If... if uh, you, there's a likelihood the case can't be decided. You might as well just uh, deny cert right away. Uh, but of course, sometimes you, you're not 100% sure about how people vote. So it, it, every, every case is different, but, but you, you, that is certainly a factor that you would consider in deciding whether to uh, grant a vote to grant cert or not. I, I often wonder, too, uh, how... Uh, I, I know the court does not like to split 4-4 because that doesn't create a precedent uh, for the rest of the nation. Uh, it doesn't offer lower courts much guidance. 
how hard does the court really work to avoid 4-4 splits when you have a court like we have now that, that seems uh, not rigid, but it is ideologically divided, that it, it must be harder to cross that bridge? Well, <coughs> you, you're never sure because when you grant certain cases, you, you don't know how you're going to uh, vote after argument. There are an amazing number of cases which turn out differently than, than you expect ahead of time. And so you, you, you really don't know. And you, you try to avoid the 4-4 four, four split, but you really try to decide the case correctly, which is the pr primary job. And you have to kind of uh, take the 4-4 four, four possibility into account. But that's not nearly as important as just trying to do what you think should be the, the proper outcome in the case. And Justice Kagan said recently that the court was working very hard to avoid 4-4 and that uh, Chief Justice Roberts in particular is, is striving to reach consensus as much as possible. Uh, I, was, uh, I don't know if you saw the order that the court issued in the recent after the arguments in the uh, challenge by the religious nonprofits to the contraception, contraceptive insurance requirement in the Affordable uh, Care Act, <laughs> uh, it was an amazing order in which the court itself seemed to be suggesting a compromise. Had you ever seen anything like that before, Justice Stevens? I, I don't remember it. And I'll tell you the truth, I haven't read that particular order. That okay. So, so I don't. Uh, I really don't have anything to add to that. Okay. Uh, they, just for your information, if you weren't aware of it, the, the court asked the parties to file extra briefs on a suggested solution to the case, and they did file briefs. And I think the hope was that the parties would find a way to resolve their differences. And after reading the briefs, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think this case is going to uh, continue to be a difficult one for them. Uh, oral arguments in the court ended a week ago, and we're now in May, June, June will come soon. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what life is like in the court during May and June? Yes, it's, it's a period that's often misunderstood by the public. Because actually, it's the busiest time of the year because you have so many opinions you're trying to get out right before the end of June. And unless you're very, very fortunate and happen to have more of your work done than most people do at that time, there's a lot of work to be done. And it's kind of always hard to explain to friends and others that we're not, we haven't shut down. We're really just working our, our heads off to try and get done. And do you have uh, in, have you do you have deadlines imposed on you for filing majority opinions or draft dissents or? Yes, actually, there used to be a very firm deadline when Billy Brennan was on the court. He he went up to Nantucket and he had had made made reservations on the ferry, and, <laughs> we, and we had to get done in time to, for him to catch the ferry. But there are other other problems too. <laughs> We, we in the press corps often look to see which justice has scheduled a flight uh, out in June, at the end of June, to, to get an idea of when the term's going to end. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I have to ask you, because it's certainly in the news, uh, do you know Merrick Garland, who's been nominated by President Obama to fill Justice Scalia's vacancy? And what can you tell us about him? Well, he's, he's, first, he's a very good judge. I, I've had a number of law clerks who worked for him, and I've learned a little bit about him through the clerks that worked for me, and I've observed his work on the bench, too. He's really a fine judge and an awfully decent uh, uh, man. I, I think the first time I met him was when he performed the wedding ceremony for one of my law clerks. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he's, a, he's, he's an excellent judge, and uh, he, he, he couldn't have... Uh, picked a better, uh, better uh, nominee. I, I hear he has a penchant for M&M peanuts, so I'm already looking favorably on him. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I'm not an expert on that no. issue. <laughs> <laughs> 
confirmations, as everybody knows, have become increasingly contentious, uh, probably uh, starting with the Bork nomination uh, back in 1987. I think that was the first confirmation hearing that I covered. And uh, I wondered if you uh, could share any of your thoughts or concerns about what is happening now with the confirmation process. And is what we're going through in a way uh, unprecedented? Uh, are we in a new phase uh, with confirmations for Supreme Court? Well, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any confirmation process has been delayed to, to the extent that this one has been, because this would go into the next, next term, if right. necessary, <clears throat> which I think is really unfortunate, because you do need an odd number of people on the court to, to make decisions, and it's particularly important now. There, there are a fair number of pretty important issues that uh, should be decided. Tell us about your confirmation process. I think people would be surprised how different it was back then. Well, the, the big difference in, in my case and, and the, the difference between mine and Sandra's is they didn't televise my hearings. And so when, when uh, the first day of the hearings, uh, I think the attorney general spoke for about two minutes. The, the representative of the American Bar Association spoke for about a minute or two on each, each of the senators from, from Illinois, and then they started questioning. Now, the first day, I remember when, when David Souter went, went ahead, the first day of the hearings are devoted to statements by the senators about how important the hearings are. Yes. <laughs> and they don't, they, they waste at least one, one day on, on explaining that very obvious fact. Yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, Justice Stevens was confirmed unanimously. With uh, 98 to nothing. Right. <laughs> to not voting, yeah. to not, not present. Yeah. And that's uh, a real rarity these days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask you, uh, we have now uh, three retired justices and uh, still quite active. Uh, Justices O'Connor and uh, Souter are occasionally sitting on federal appellate courts making decisions, and you're certainly active. If the uh, vacancy extends into another term, is there any legal or constitutional bar that would prevent the Chief Justice from asking one of you to come back and lend a hand? I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if there's any uh, legal objection. Uh, actually, while Bill Rehnquist was the chief, he and I proposed a, a, the, uh, having, uh, giving the court the uh, uh, opportunity to ask a retired justice to come back and sit with the court. And we, we both were in favor of it but nobody else on the court was. <laughs> and they just thought we should just let the, the active judges do the deciding and, and that's it. But I think it makes a lot of sense because uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, cases in which they're not ideologically div d divisive, they're just tough cases. And that you, you might get uh, a 4-4 split and you could avoid that by uh, asking a retired judge uh, judge to sit. So, so I think it would be a good idea, but I think it, it would have to be pre uh, preceded by some kind of adoption of a rule or something mm -hmm. like that. So would you answer the call if it came? I don't think so, no. no? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've earned the right to stay Say home. no? Yeah. <laughs> and, and from what I know of Justice Souter, he probably would have a backpack packed and he'd be heading for the White Mountains. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Chris, he sits on a lot of cases on the, on the first circuit. He does, yes, yeah. and some pretty interesting ones as well. Um, uh, Justice O'Connor has not been shy about telling the Senate what she feels it should be doing right now. And I, I wonder, are you, you similarly uh, not shy? I mean, what would you tell the Senate to do right now? Well, I, I, it's telling, it's, I, I don't think the, the, the verb tell is if correct. Asked. <laughs> if asked for your advice. If, if they asked me, sure, I'd give them my advice to say you go ahead and hold the hearings, but uh, I doubt they're going to do that. <laughs> Tell us about 
Tell us at what point in your life uh, you decided to become a lawyer. And uh, could you also take us back to the Great Depression and what happened to your father, your grandfather, and uncle? And did that have any particular influence on you? Uh, actually, no. Uh, it, it was my, my decision to go into law was totally independent of that uh, particular event. Just uh, for those who, who, who don't know about it, my, my father and grandfather and uncle were defendants in a criminal case for, for making a loan from Illinois Life Insurance Company to enable the Stevens Hotel to pay off the bond interest. And they, the, the, the net result of the case was, well, my grandfather and my, my uncle were not able to stand trial, but the net result, the jury convicted them on the, on the case, but the, uh, the net result, and then the, the Illinois Supreme Court set aside the conviction because there was not a scintilla of evidence of, of uh, wrongdoing. But the, um, the sort of the, on the history of the thing, the, the thought was that the, the, the loan that the life insurance company, um, which was controlled by my grandfather, made to enable the uh, Stevens to pay the, uh, its bond interest is what caused the demise of, the, uh, of lots of, of uh, insurance policyholders. But in fact, they, they, they sold out the, their, uh, the whole portfolio of policies, and nobody lost any money as a result of the transaction except our family, yeah. <laughs> and they lost a lot. They were very wealthy before that happened. Right, and it was a great hotel, wasn't it, in Chicago? It still is. Still is, and yeah. what's the name of it now? Conrad Hilton. Conrad Hilton, right, right. Um, so how did you make the decision to be a lawyer? Well, the, at the end of the um, hostilities in World War II, the G, uh, GI Bill became available, and that made the opportunity to go to law school uh, available because actually I'd saved up a lot of money during the, my, my wife was a Rosie the Riveter and she made a, a lot of money and, and I was stationed in Hawaii for the whole, whole war and so, so we, we had the assets to, uh, to, do, to do that. And uh, my brother, I, mean, I have an older brother who was a lawyer and he wrote me a letter that's uh, very similar. I've mentioned in se several occasions uh, to John Adams' letter explaining some of the psychic benefits of, uh, of the practice of the law. And I think uh, Jim persuaded me that oh, it'd be a, an important, a good thing to do. Was it your first choice? I mean, had you thought about law uh, when you were an undergraduate? No, I was I was going to be an English teacher, yeah. and uh, I, I think I made the right choice. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after Justice Stevens graduated from Northwestern University, he enlisted in the Navy shortly before World War II, or shortly before the attack on Pearl Harbor, right? That's when I graduated from University of Chicago College. Right, uh, your undergraduate, yeah. right. And uh, he earned a Bronze Star as a cryptographer during the war. Actually, I was a traffic analyst. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, now wait a minute, he's very humble. So what was your role in uh, the shooting down of the plane that was carrying Admiral Yamamoto, who was responsible for the attack on Pearl Harbor. My, my role was to read a message announcing they, they got him. <laughs> 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 and and it, was, it was really a brilliant operation and it was, took, took a lot of planning. They, we had intercepted a message that detailed his exact route that he was flying in, in the Solomon Islands. And they sent up a, a squadron of uh, uh, Air Force pilots from, uh, uh, I can't remember, anyway, it was near, near Rabaul in, in New Guinea. And they in, in, he intercepted him and shot him down. And uh, he was part of a, a, a larger flight. They set, shot down a couple other planes. And, uh, but the, it, it, it was not known that that had happened 
for several months later when they had some kind of a ceremony in Tokyo that publicized it, and then it became known. But it was known within the, 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 the Navy, but not the general public. You were the last justice to serve on the Supreme Court with military experience, war experience. Yes. And uh, I wondered, uh, did that help you in any way, influence you in any way when you were f faced with, uh, for example, the Guantanamo Bay detainee cases that came before the court in which they were looking for federal court review of their detentions in Guantanamo Bay? <clears throat> I, I really don't know, but, but I do know that uh, I met Byron White during the, during the war, and we were very good friends uh, while, I, while we were both on the court. And although we disagreed about uh, a fair number of things, although it's interesting, Byron was the one member of the court who, who was writing in the campaign finance area is, was absolutely right. And he was the only member of the court who objected, rather, who held that, that uh, laws limiting political expenditures during the campaigns were, were constitutional. And I think he, 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 he had very important opinions. But he was a really wonderful guy and, and a, a very good friend. After you uh, graduated from law school, you became a clerk on yes. the Supreme Court. Could you tell us how you got your clerkship and how it differs from how you hired your clerks? Well, most clerks now are hired based on the recommendation of a court of appeals judge as to what, they, what, what they're doing. But uh, I was the, I got the job because I won a coin flip. <laughs> <laughs> there were two of us at Northwestern who were, had, had the, the best grades in the class and uh, Two members of the faculty, Willard Wirtz, who was later Secretary of Labor, and Willard Pedrick, who was, was, uh, had, had uh, worked with uh, Fred Vinson. Uh, and they, for sure, they had uh, commitments from Vinson and Rutledge to make two clerkships available to, uh, to Northwestern graduates. And they told that between the two of them, they couldn't decide which of us should go to uh, go first, or which one should be better? Because our grades were were very close, and and, uh, and incidentally, my my colleague Art Cedar, whom I'm re referring to, happened to have been born on the same day I was. Oh wow! Exactly, <laughs> and and he was a, a former uh, uh, um, a bomber pilot in in uh, England. But anyway, they we had a meeting in the law review office to discuss uh, how we're going to analyze this clerkship problem. And the, the problem was that the, the job with Vin Vincent, the chief, would have begun a year in the future, because he'd already hired his clerks for next year. Whereas the job with Rutledge, which was the other, would be that immediately right, right next. And they couldn't decide which one should go to which, uh, which uh, uh, clerkship. And so they asked us to decide. And we both wanted the Rutledge clerkship because that's right away, and we, we thought we were elderly citizens having been, gone through the war. And actually, now I understand a lot of uh, prospective uh, law students take a year off anyway. Yes. Which, <laughs> but anyway, so we decided to flip a coin, and I, I won the flip. <laughs> and, and so that made a big difference in our. And, and you remained friends with uh, oh, Art. Oh, yes. He's really a wonderful guy. Very, very good friends. Did he go on to get a clerkship eventually? Oh, yeah. He no, went he, to he, Vincent? He got the clerkship with, with Vincent for the Vincent. following year. Right, right. And, and he also he had to go for two years, and I only had to go for one year. <laughs> yeah. what, what stands out in your mind about that year with uh, Justice Rutledge and the justices you served with? Because you served or he served with uh, some of the kind of giants uh, that, that we know of, uh, Frankfurter, Black, uh, Douglas, um, uh, Jackson, uh, who also, uh, I think, uh, Noah Feldman in his book uh, called Scorpions. So how, well, what was that year like for you? Well, uh, it was a 
wonderful year. It really, really was, and, and it was a hard year. We had a lot of a lot of cases to dis, uh, to work on, but um, I, I I developed a tremendous admiration and respect <coughs> for Wiley Rutledge. He was a very very good uh, good judge and a very he he wouldn't make up his mind on a case till he'd done all the work himself. He he he, <coughs> he did not require his law clerk to do too much of his thinking, put it that way. And, uh, I, but I admired him really tremendously. He, he inf had an influence on you, did he not, in the Guantanamo Bay cases that you wrote in? Well, actually, uh, he had written a dissent in a case called Aaron's against Clark, which was a question whether um, a German... Uh, prisoners were entitled to uh, get uh, habeas corpus relief when they were in um, on uh, on Ellis Island, I think, and they sued the attorney general in the District of Columbia. And the question was whether they had jurisdiction when the the uh, jailer is in a different district from the uh, from the uh, where the lawsuit is brought. And they held that they did not have jurisdiction in the case. And Wiley wrote a dissent, which is a very strong dissent. There was part of the, uh, uh, the uh, legal learning that I relied on in one of the Guantanamo right, yes. cases. That's true. How did the court differ when you joined it in 1975, other than personalities? Did much change? Well, there's a lot changed. <laughs> of course, uh, Byron used to say on, on many occasions, whenever we get a new justice on the court, it's a different court. And that's true. Is it one, one new justice ch changes the entire uh, working relationship among the, ju among the justices. And, it's, and, and every change produces a new court. So that's what I think about back in uh, Frankfurter and, and Douglas and all those, they, of course, were an entirely different court, but there were some brilliant uh, judges on that court. Yes. Uh, and then the court uh, you left in 2010, that was a very different court from the one you joined. It, it was, and of course, the, perhaps the main difference was the um, uh, amount of work. When I joined, the case, the court took many too many cases, and so, and so all of the judges were really overworked and, and were struggling to keep abreast of the work. And that changed later when they repealed the statute. It gave us mandatory jurisdiction of a lot of a lot of appellate cases. And then the other thing that helped keep the, the workload down was the creation of the cert pool, where the uh, number of the judges, back to all of them now, uh, pool, except, except Sam. Sam Malia is not, right. not in the clerk. They pool their clerks and write what they call pool memos about cert petitions, and they all have access to the same memo. And I think I did not join the pool. I think I think, although it, it did a, did a service in cutting down on the number of cases, I think that it cut down too much. I think now they don't take as many cases as they should, and I think one reason they don't is that the the pool, the uh, clerks writing for a pool writing for a whole bunch of justices, there's a kind of a built-in bias. Don't stick your neck out and recommend a grant unless it's a really, really a clear case. And I do think that the pool has an adverse effect on the number of cases they hear. I know when I first started covering the court, that term, the court decided about 158 cases. And now the court decides between 70 and 75. Yeah. Um, is there a sweet spot? Uh, what What do you think is? Uh, is there a what? I didn't get the a, a sweet spot. Oh. Is Is there a good number that you think? 
Yeah, I think the 150 is too many, and I think the number they take is too few. <clears throat> and when I started on the court, I, I was the deny person. I tended to vote deny more than my colleagues. But, but by the time I left, I'd become a grant person because <laughs> I thought they were not taking enough. Uh -huh. And uh, they, sh they should take more than they do now. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, the Roberts Court... Uh has a reputation, and I think it also extended back to the Rehnquist court uh, of, of being a particularly collegial court. And uh, it's sort of an amazing reputation when you consider the ideological divide on the court. And I wondered, uh, you know, what is, uh, you know, the secret recipe here to this collegial court, and can we bottle it and send it across the street to, uh, <laughs> The capital. <laughs> well, the, there, there's uh, a couple of reasons for the collegial court. They're all nice people. They <laughs> really are. And, and you, you can disagree strongly entirely with somebody like, like uh, Clarence Thomas. I disagree with him frequently. But he's an awfully nice guy, and I'm very fond of him. He's a, good, a very good friend. And I think he feels the same way about me, even, even though... Uh, we, we disagree on the merits, but there is a world of difference between your opinion on the merits and your personal feelings for your colleagues. And they just, they, they're a nice bunch of people. Okay. Uh, whenever there's a Supreme Court nomination uh, by either a Republican or Democratic president, uh, we begin to see articles and debates about whether uh, justices evolve while they're on the bench. And you were on the bench uh, almost 35 years. Did you evolve at all? And where do you think you may have evolved? Yes, I did. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Excuse me. You, you learn a lot on, on the job, and your, your views will, will change to a certain extent as things go on. But uh, I don't know. it's sort of like going to law school. You learn more about the law when second and third year being a judge is the same sort of thing. You learn more about the law and about particular problems that arise out of case, cases, and, and and you're bound to evolve to a, to a certain extent. Was the death penalty an area where you, you felt you evolved? Well, yes. I, I, Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there, there are two different aspects of it in the... Uh, Cases that were decided the fir my first year on the court, I made a mistake on the uh, Texas case, and, and incidentally, another another interviewer asked me about that on an interview shortly after I retired, and I said I, I made a mistake on on, on Jurek, and and Jurek is a case. Well, we had some cases, some death cases, which were mandatory death penalty, and others which depended on the a hearing before the jury. And basically, we heard the held the mandatory cases invalid, the statutes invalid, and the others valid. And the Texas uh, case at the jury, there's the, the <coughs> required the jury be given an instruction that really was made it a mandatory penalty. And I think I voted incorrectly in that case. I was interviewed by Nina Totenberg about this, asked the same question, and I told her that I made a mistake in the death case. But that, she didn't quote that, include that part of the interview in the recorded uh, 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 program. She summarized it, and she said, I made a mistake in the three death penalty cases. Oh. And yeah. she, she got it wrong, and everybody sort of said, I. I made a mistake in all of the cases when I really was felt I only was wrong in the in the uh, Texas case. But since then, then actually since John Roberts became chief, I, I could, my my views on the death penalty have changed, and I am now persuaded that it it's really a total a, a waste of resources. It's it, it it's a totally uh, a wasteful process, and and it doesn't do it does, it does very little. Uh, benefit to society, and I think we really should get rid of, of, of the death penalty. Yeah. 
uh, last term in a case involving lethal injection and the death penalty, uh, Justice Breyer wrote a dissent. Uh, the court upheld uh, the lethal injection challenge in that case. He wrote a dissent uh, that was joined by Justice Ginsburg in which he basically called on the court not to throw out the death penalty, but to at least have briefs and a hearing on arguments as to whether the death penalty is still constitutional. And he really did go a little further than that in that he listed all of the problems that he has seen during his time on the bench with the death penalty, which he felt should justify the court taking another look at it. And uh, I wondered if, uh, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but that was unusual to see Justice Breyer do that. You have Justice Ginsburg joining in. Uh, do you see, do you, do you think the day is getting close when the court will at least re-examine it? Well, it's hard to say uh, because uh, aside, from, <coughs> aside from Ruth, <coughs> no one has really expressed a different opinion. But I think it's entirely possible that if they did take a fresh look at it, they, they would come around and say it really doesn't make any sense. Because it, it really doesn't. It, 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 the more you think about it, the, the less value or less positive att attributes there are. When you think the people are on death row for 20 and 25 years, and when the whole point of it for, for retribution is retribution, so the friends and families will get an immediate uh, satisfaction. And a guy sitting around on death row for 20 and 25 years didn't, just doesn't make any sense. Why did you decide to write your book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution? How did, how did that come about? Well, I just thought that there are at least six things that should be changed. <laughs> and, 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 and some of them are, are not a focus of much debate or attention, but uh, the anti-commandeering rule is a, a vestige of the Civil War, and the, the sovereign immunity doctrine doesn't make any sense at all. And, and I really think if they take a good hard look at what I've described in that book, uh, it makes a lot of sense. If you could have one of those six amendments in place tomorrow, which one would you choose? Uh, gerrymandering. Really? Yeah, oh, definitely. Because there, there really is no valid justification for gerrymandering, and it is one of the main things that is responsible for the deadlock in government, where the House is picked by the majority party in the state, can, can draw their own districts. They're able to get their own uh, party in, in year after year after year. And, and, if you, and, and it's not a difficult problem at all, because the court has held that racial gerrymandering is, is justiciable. And it's not a bit harder to identify a gerrymandered racial, a racially gerrymandered district than a politically gerrymandered district. And there's really no difference in terms of, of impact on the political process. The, the gerrymandering allows the party in power to, to, to pick its, its districts in a way that perpetuates its, its control. I, I think that has probably done more damage to the democratic process than any doctrine that the court has refused to face. Why does the court find it so hard to well, find a standard to judge gerrymandering, political ger gerrymanders? I, I frankly don't know, because it doesn't make any sense at all uh, to say they can't figure out. You know, you look at some of those ma maps, yeah. you know there's something fishy there. <laughs> and, 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 I'm, very, I'm really very serious about that. It really is a, a very serious problem. One of the amendments, uh, I believe, is uh, to deal with the Citizens United decision. Yes. And uh, I was thinking back, uh, 
Justice Kennedy uh, wrote the Citizens United Majority Opinion. And he, I think it was last year, was at uh, having a conversation at Harvard. And one of the law students asked him if he regretted that decision, given what we've seen with he money. He said no. He said no. But he also said, as an aside, well, the disclosure aspect of the decision hasn't worked out the way we thought. Yeah. And that was the, the safeguard, the safety net, that at least the, the majority said people would know who is putting the money into the elections. Okay, let's fast forward another term or two, and the court has the McCutcheon case, which had to do with limits on the aggregation of contributions, and the court struck down those limits. And at the time, and I think this was the Chief Justice's majority opinion, yes. he criticized some of the amicus briefs that said, look, if you do this, we're going to have this happen, this happen, that happen. And he said they were divorced from reality, those hypotheticals. And yet they have happened. So you have the disclosure requirements not working out when the court was told by many that the disclosure laws were not being enforced by the Federal Election Commission. And then you had McCutcheon and the court being told that these things were going to happen by people who are on the ground and work in this area. And I wonder uh, that people who observe these decisions don't think uh, that the court or are cynical about the court being perhaps political, or is it naive, naivete? You know, what do you what do you think here? Well, one thing about the McCutcheon case that I think is is not mentioned as as often as it should be is that I think McCutcheon was from Alabama, wasn't yes. he? And all of his contributions were to state contests in other states. He wasn't, wasn't necessarily uh, tr trying to just elect, elect people who would represent him, him, but rather people who would represent the uh, other, uh, other citizens in other states. And he was trying to use his money to, to affect states on which he has a, just a marginal interest right. in, in what happened. And, and it, that seems to me that's, that's really quite a, quite a stretch. Yeah. So I, I wondered again, uh, perhaps the last justice with real experience on the ground with elections was Justice O'Connor. And she was the one who uh, uh, upheld the uh, uh, McCain-Feingold limits uh, before she left the bench. It was a joint opinion. We wrote it together. That's right. You did. Yeah. You did. So it seems to be uh, the type of experience that the court could really use when it faces these cases. Well, and of course, that's true of my friend Byron White, too, because he was involved in uh, the financing of uh, Jack Kennedy's uh, uh, campaign and election. And he's, he's the one member of the, of the court who got it right in Buckley. Buckley. Yeah. yeah, Buckley against Vallejo. You, do, you, do you see uh, at least the current membership? Of course, everything changes, doesn't it, now with the vacancy? So we don't know uh, going forward how the court may look at this area again if it comes before it. That's right. Right. So I can't ask you to look at a crystal ball on that one. All right. Um, when uh, he was asked uh, how he would amend the Constitution, Justice Scalia said he would amend it to make amending easier. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Uh, is it too hard to amend the Constitution? And should we be afraid of, say, a convention to amend the Constitution? Uh, <coughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, the convention seems kind of unlikely. I think that might be a little bit uh, diff difficult. But, but I do think that uh, uh, there are valid arguments for six amendments that I, that I can <laughs> Spoken like a true politician. <laughs> OK. Uh, during your years on the court, what kind of uh, uh, cases did you find the hardest to resolve? Oh, man, you get tough cases in every every branch of the law. I, I don't okay. I, I don't really have one that stands out as 
is, is tougher than all the, all the rest. Okay. I have to uh, go to questions and answers, but I, I have to ask you one more question, because I think it's on the minds of a lot of, lot of people. Uh, Justice Ginsburg once said that each member of the court wants this institution to maintain the position that it has had in this system, where it is not considered a political branch of government. And another justice once said, we survived one great danger, Bush v. Gore. At least to me, he said, that seemed highly political. And I wonder, as you look at the current political environment, you know, the fact that the vacancy on the court might extend well into another term, it's a highly polarized political environment. We've seen Chief Justice Roberts, who is a conservative, criticized by conservatives as a mistake only because of his vote on to uphold the Affordable Care Act. We had a Democratic presidential candidate say he would only appoint people who promised to overturn Citizens United. And now we have an entire party in the US Senate refusing to even hold hearings on a nomination. Is the court getting closer to another great danger, do you think? Well, there are a couple of things that I don't agree with in, in, in your question. Okay. First, I don't think the court has really survived uh, Bush against Gore. Ah, okay. I think that is, an, it is a historic, terrible mistake. And it's had more, more impact on the public's perception of, of judicial independence and, and, and then people realize because I think it has, it really has, it was a, a, a poisonous decision, decision and really quite unfortunate. So I, that's one thing that I, 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 I just don't agree with. Uh, as to the others, uh, again, I've said, and I still, still think, I still, if you can get rid of gerrymandering, I think a lot of things would fall into in a place. Okay, fair enough. Okay, let's try some of these questions. Do you miss being on the Supreme Court? Why or why not? It's a good question. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, of course. They're, they're, they're wonderful people, but I, I definitely made the right, to, right decision when they decided to retire. Okay. <laughs> Louis Brandeis once said that if we can have either wealth concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, an autocracy or oligarchy, or we can have a democracy, but not both, have recent Supreme Court decisions subverted or undermined a democracy? Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay, I can read this. Could you comment on the First Amendment as it relates to the current status of academic freedom on college campuses? Well, I'm, I'm really not as up to date as I should be on, on, okay. on that uh, topic, but. Uh, I, I think there is some some valid concern that maybe there's more uh, thought control on campuses than, than there should be. Okay. How helpful or non-helpful do you believe oral arguments to be? Oh, they're very, very important. Uh, and I might just say, the, the, uh, this is my friend, the, the best oral advocate I, that, that I admired most when I was on the bench was Bob Bork. Oh. He was a wonderful Solicitor General and a really, really a fine lawyer. You, you also spoke uh, in favor of his confirmation, yes. did you not? Yeah. Yeah. There are some who feel the Chief Justice ought to step up and say something to the Senate about the vacancy. Is that something that you... No, I don't. I, I don't know. That's up to him. I, I have a lot of confidence in John's judgment about what what he should do, and uh, I, I wouldn't try to give him any advice on, on that point. 
Which of the majority opinions that you authored do you feel is the most important? You know, I'll have to <laughs> make a confession. I've been asked that question dozens of times, and I never know what to say. <laughs> and I, I really don't know. There, 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 okay. there are a lot of important cases that I worked on, and sometimes I think one was number one, and then others kind of, kind of displace it. Okay. Do you think that the media's reflection of the Supreme Court fairly presents how the court works or is working? And be careful how you answer this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the media is doing an awfully good job on the whole. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's in, they've gotten better as the years go by. And I, and I, think, <laughs> I think you are, as you've, you've shown by your questioning, you know pretty well what's going on. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. What do you think would happen if, as in 2000, the election is thrown to the Supreme Court with only eight justices? Well, I don't think, that, I don't think there's a procedure whereby it's, it, that could happen. I'm not sure. I have to relook at that, all the arguments made in Bush against Gore, but I think it's more apt to be thrown to the Senate than Should, to... Yes. Than to the guard. Yeah. But as we know, it can happen. <laughs> what do you look for when hiring a law clerk? Well, somebody I'd like to spend a lot of time with. <laughs> <laughs> because it, you, you, and I might, I might brag about one thing. One thing, I, I think I did a, a particularly good job of picking law clerks. And, and I, I, I'm going to see a bunch of them later today. Uh, here in in New York, when I'm with, but I, I I really can can brag about my 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 success in that department. And I I can uh, support that. Many of his clerks have gone on to uh, become uh, nationally known for their scholarship, where they're on law faculties, and also uh, have uh, uh, handled major cases in law firms. Uh, uh, so it, it is a, a brilliant and great crew that you've... And, and some of them have done very well in business, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One of them uh, got Home Depot out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. It was one of my law clerks. He was the CEO of uh, Home Depot. I think a lot of people wonder about this. Is there a way for the justices to decide a case without their liberal or conservative biases interfering? Yes, there, there is. They, they, I, I think you, it's not necessarily liberal or conservative biases, but, but you do have certain, uh, certain views on certain issues, and I think it's entirely appropriate to, to adhere to those views as you uh, consider other cases. Do you think there should be a retirement age for Supreme Court justices? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, just a, a little aside on this. When I went through the nomination process, I had recently had a, a coronary bypass. And the principal issue that they addressed during much of my question was whether my health was, was sufficient. <laughs> they wouldn't, didn't want to waste the job for somebody <laughs> only be available for a few years. <laughs> okay, I think maybe we can take one more. Does the lack of professional experience, for example, a background in criminal defense, civil rights, et cetera, adversely affect the court's decision-making process? Well, I don't, I really don't think so because uh, there's so many issues that are not part of your regular uh, knowledge or, or background that you have to learn about new things all the time. And, and I think it's, it's, hel it's hel that's healthy. I think it works out on, on, uh, for the most part. So, you know, you were also the last Protestant to serve on the court. I was the, be the last, uh, what, what was the term, white, not, wasp. I was the last wasp. Wasp, yeah, that's right, that's, that's right. right. 
Well, please join me in thanking Justice Stevens. You did a nice job. Thank you. So, Marsha Coyle, I just want everyone to know this program was Marsha's idea. I called her and said, what, 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 what do you think we should do? And we'd love to have you. And she suggested Justice Stevens' conversation. So, Marsha, we want to thank you so much for this. And Justice Stevens, um, same time next year, 97th birthday, and great having you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming this morning. We'll see you again soon, and thank you again.